Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. Welcome to the Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks for joining us for a special episode of the Amazing Spider-Talk as we are going across the Spider-Verse. But... In the meantime, if you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review to help spread the word about our show. This podcast exists because of the support of our Patreon members. If you want to receive early episodes, exclusive artwork, and keep this podcast going, go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com. You'll see a big Patreon button, and you can consider joining our Patreon, where all the episodes of Season 6 are already going up several weeks early, including interviews with Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco. All right, this week I was fortunate enough to be invited by The Hollywood Reporter and Sony Pictures to attend the red carpet premiere of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. This was in Westwood, and I was really fortunate to go. It was such an exciting event to see the movie early amongst the filmmakers who were all there, the producers, the cast and crew, and a bunch of other assembled media figures I got to bump into Dan Slott and Brian Michael Bendis and Paul Shear and Yuri Lowenthal. There was all kinds of people and old friends of the show and, and new friends and hopefully future friends of the show. But today I wanted to talk a little bit about my early impressions of Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse uh, with you. I'm going to just kind of extemporize about this because I don't have Mark here. He hasn't had a chance to see it yet. You know, this is just going to be me this episode talking about my impressions of the film. Um, I'll say uh, off the bat, my feelings about the previous film for those who haven't listened to our episode on that show or heard me talk about it in the years since it's hard to believe it's been five years since the release of into the spider verse. That film I think remains the best Spider-Man film the best superhero film of all time. I just don't think anything has come close to capturing one, the feel of the comics, the spirit of the character, and really had um, a script on the level of that film. Not only did it push animation forward in a way that everybody is copying now, um, you know, it just told a completely heartfelt story that didn't have a sour beat in the whole thing. The film has really special meaning to me. I saw it seven times in the theaters and bawled my eyes out every time that I went and saw it. 
I've mentioned this before on Twitter, but it held an extra special place for me in the five years since its release. Uh, because at the time that I saw the film, I was having real questions of myself about whether or not I wanted to become a parent. And as a school teacher, don't have access to unlimited funds. And in the economy that we live in, in the world we live in, you know, being able to raise my son, now my son, in a way that I wanted to, giving him more than I had, I just didn't know if it was possible given my current career. You know, I see the like, you know, looming ecological disaster, political turmoil, and all of these things that just made me really question whether or not I wanted to have a child. And my parents had always said to me, you, you know, you're never ready. You know, there will never be a good time to have a child. And my thought on that was like, well, that sounds like I'm about to get hit by a bus. There's never a good time to get hit by a bus. You're never going to be ready to get hit by a bus. And that just didn't make it sound appealing to me. And yet something in Into the Spider-Verse impacted me on a deep level, almost like just cut to my soul. This idea of it's a leap of faith that all it takes is believing in yourself Miles to believe in himself, to unlock his powers as Spider-Man. That's what it was about. And the iconic image I think that has come out of that movie is one of Miles clinging to the side of a building and jumping off and then rising into the sky as they invert the image of the city. I think the thing that people miss, or maybe they didn't quite understand the depths of that image, is that Miles, when he jumps, he breaks the glass in the building behind him. And the movie establishes, but does not reiterate in that moment, that Miles's sticky powers that allow him to cling to things activate when he's scared. And so this image is saying that Miles is terrified. And as he jumps, he's still terrified. And therefore, his sticky powers are activating and breaking the glass behind him. And yet he still chooses to jump. That really spoke to me on a deep level. The idea that I could be terrified of something, having a child, for example, and still choose to believe in myself enough that I could, I could do this. I had it. It's not, there's not a good time. It's that there's always a good time if you believe in yourself. And that gets reiterated back to Peter, whose plot in that movie is explicitly about whether or not he had the faith in himself to have a child with Mary Jane. And not by not having that faith, he has in some way destroyed that relationship. So anyway, long story short, I am now a father because of that movie. I mean, really, it's because of my own interest in being a father, but that movie has a strong you know, part to play in, in that journey. And so it maintains a really special place in my heart. Beyond just being an excellent movie, it has a personal connection for me. So could any sequel live up to that standard? No, there's no way. Like I have too much of an emotional attachment to that, but I'm very open to it, obviously going into this and very excited to see beyond rather across the Spider-Verse. Now, I had heard early on that they were splitting it into two movies. I got to admit, it really gave me some trepidation. You know, we have the Harry Potters, you know, part seven, one and two. And 
the Hobbit being split into three movies. And, and typically I'm not saying any of those are particularly bad movies. Although I think the jury is out on the Hobbit movies. Typically this is a sign of like studio bloat that executives have gotten their hands in the mess and really are trying to extract as much money out of it as possible. And that was really my big fear going into across the spider verse was that the first movie was relatively like under the radar, you know, like editorial was not messing around in that. And by that, I mean like executive stuff in the studios. Like you have, you know, Sony pictures animation. That's this small division of Sony and it's becoming a bigger division, especially on the back of the success of the previous movie. But you don't have a lot of people getting their hands in it. And so you have this creative team that really is doing what they do best. Be creative, tell a great story, all those things without really needing to tie into any other properties or pr- do any cross promotions or fit into a larger agenda. And then suddenly this picture wins an Oscar. And makes a decent amount of money. And so, of course, you're going to green light the sequel. But then who gets involved? And that was really my fear uh, about this was that these other people would get involved. And you saw the departure of some directors and some talent from the first film moving on. In fact, all these animation companies started poaching all of the animators and people involved in the first movie because obviously those people clearly tapped into some kind of zeitgeist and really pushed animation forward. So, you know, then this happens with any movie. There's always like, you know, a skeleton of the crew left behind, you know, in this case, like uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who were the producers and, you know, co-writers of the first one are still working on this one. And so it's like, okay, you know, I think it's going to be fine, but that did, sit in the back of my head and I was very nervous about it for a long time. Okay. So how do I feel about this movie? Does it keep up with the original movie and deliver on the promises that that movie, the high caliber artistry and avoid a lot of this executive mucking around with it? The answer is yes. This is an excellent movie it really lives up to the potential of the first movie. Let's just talk like break it down. Animation. The first movie, you know, brought in this new style of animation that I think American animation was desperate for for a long time. Everyone had been copying the Pixar style, the DreamWorks style, and it was time for somebody to come in and shake up animation. And that came in the form of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I think a bit of an unexpected place for that to come from this small, smaller studio animation company. This takes that ball and runs with it more than you could ever imagine. I'm not going to reveal anything that's not in the trailers. And even then I'll be reluctant to talk about that. Just take Spider-Gwen's universe, which we spend a fair deal of time in, in the movie, at least 15 to 20 minutes of the movie takes place in her world. It is this incredible, beautiful painterly style that is strongly influenced by the punk rock aesthetic of those original comics, but takes it in like a real kind of like oil paint direction 
it is stunning to look at every second that we spend on it. And the backgrounds morph and shape to the emotions of the characters. Her world is one of pure expression and, and emotions. And it really matches that character who herself is going through a lot in this movie. There are moments where the backgrounds will just melt away and they'll be replaced by abstract expressionist paintings that are constantly shape shifting. I've never seen anything like it, frankly. It's it's stunning. You know, we go to Spider-Man India's world, which also has its own unique style and you know, it's 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 similar enough to to Miles's world with a bit of a different, you know, colors and uh, it's more pastel looking, but all of the universes that we travel to are really distinctly different in their art style um, and wonderfully designed. You know, we spend most of our time in Miles's world and the world of the spider people, which I, I won't reveal has been seen in the trailers and, and both of those are fine, but it's when we get into these little expressionist pieces that it gets really fun. But the animation itself is just stunning, you know, on a character level. We've never seen Spider-Man move like this before. And the directors do a wonderful job of always framing the action. No matter how much chaos is going on screen, you can always, like, keep up with it. It's so well done. All the characters have a unique way of moving. There are characters in multiple art styles, just like Spider-Ham, was brought into the world in the last one. Here we get a few other additions that really are allowed to stand on their own. You've got like Pavita Pravakar, the Spider-Man India, and he has these like web bracelets that he flings around that are always incredible to watch. The Spot, what a great villain. Every time he's on screen, which I'll admit, I don't think he's on screen enough. In this movie, he you lose him about halfway through the movie, but he is really set up as a great villain, but mostly just to watch. Like we all know the spot is a really, really cool character design, you know, goofy. Yes, maybe, you know, I remember Mark Wade used him for good body horror, you know, with Marcos Martin during their Daredevil run here. You know, he's funny. And he's a bad guy, but just watching those portals and how they use it and these big battles between him and Miles is really fun to watch. But they also nail the quiet moments. There's a scene with uh, Miles and his father overlooking the city and the details they show on the city and the way the wind blows is just beautiful. It's a quiet thing that the movie takes time for and it's stunning. There's also you know, really great character stuff done out of costume. The character that I was surprised really stole my heart. And frankly, I wanted even more of in the movie is Rio Morales. And I don't think that sentence has ever been said about that character. I don't think anybody really cares all that much about Rio Morales in the comics or the cartoons. You know, she got killed by Venom and brought back. And I don't think we've ever gotten really any decent characterization of her. And here, you know, Jefferson Morales and Rio are both major characters in the movie, which I feared that we would lose them with Miles traveling across the Spider-Verse. But they still hold their own, specifically Rio. And her relationship with Miles is really beautiful. And I can only hope would be the kind of relationship I might have with my own son. 
which is to say the themes of parenthood are back in this movie in a big way. And they're just as touching as they were in the first movie, but they're developed, you know, like it's kind of about watching your, your child grow up and uh, preparing them for the outside world while reminding them that you still love them and uh, you have what's best in, in mind for them, even if you might disagree or come across as overbearing. I, I just loved everything with Rio Morales. There's a party scene on a rooftop that's shown in the trailers that is a lot longer than I thought. And I wanted to spend all the time I could in, in that scenario. So um, I, I, I was really thrilled by, by all of that. So yeah. Okay. Great action, great characterization. You're probably saying, you know, what's the, but Dan, uh, you seem a little bit hesitant on this. I I'll admit I am. I like this movie. I don't think it's as good as the first one. And I think anybody that's saying it is, is selling you a false bill of goods. I mean, that's not to say people aren't allowed to have their own opinions, but I just think the primacy of that first one, it stood on its own so solidly that you, you could show it to anybody and it would exist as its own thing. It didn't need to be continued on. This movie is not that, you know, I mentioned that it was split in half. They changed the name to be Across the Spider-Verse and then the second one to be Beyond the Spider-Verse, kind of leaving that whole split structure aside. That is not true. This is half of a movie, and that's the real rub. That's not to say I don't think the second half of it's going to be great and make this worth it, worth taking this approach, but it is disappointing on its own that the movie exists in the state that it exists in today without being able to follow it up. The ending of the movie, without getting into any details, will leave you very excited for what's to come next. It's got a great hook, but that's just the thing. It's kind of like the movie ends at the third act where where any other movie is. And at two hours and 20 minutes, it's a long movie, a lot longer than the original one. And I don't really understand why the movie is split in the way that it is or that they couldn't consolidate and make it into one big movie. I understand there's money and all that stuff, but as a viewer, it felt very frustrating to watch the credits roll on this movie. And and that can be in a good way too, right? You want to see more. Um, But I felt like as its own chapter in this larger thing, it can't really stand on its own. And they do a lot of work to give characters arcs in this movie, but it's just not its own thing. It's just not. And those arcs are marginally satisfying, but they don't measure up to the original movie. And really, like I said, nothing really could. But I, I think it's important that you go into this movie knowing that it's half of a movie because it might really help you out. The best comparison, they've been trying to make this comparison that it is the Empire Strikes Back of this trilogy. But I think the Empire Strikes Back ends on a note, like it ends with the end of a chapter, right? There is a there is a mournful, sorrowful image of Luke and Leia embracing and looking out into oblivion, having lost their friend and suffered that defeat. And it really feels like a moment 
for those characters that they've come to the end of a chapter. This one does not feel like that. It ends in the middle of a moment. Like things are gearing up to happen and it just ends and says more will come. In that regard, I think the better comparison is Back to the Future Part 2. Where Back to the Future Part 1, if you want to call it Part 1, was its own standalone movie that didn't need to have a follow-up. I mean, granted, it had the big tease at the end, just like the first Spider-Verse did. But Part 2 is designed to be part of a trilogy. Now, I'm not saying that the third Spider-Verse movie is going to go randomly back to the West. And I hope to God it doesn't, you know, I, I go, I guess we will, you know, get this whole, uh, you know, train thing uh, complete. Both of these two Spider-Verse movies end with major t- train sequences. Um, so maybe we can complete the hat trick just like Back to the Future did with the train sequence. You know, Back to the Future 2, I feel like it, it, it has a kind of complete ending. They're able to send Marty back to wherever. You know, but it ends at a moment where you're like, it's just getting good. And I feel the same way about this. And so that was very disappointing. And you could feel it in the audience when the movie ended. Like people just wanted more in a good way. And I guess we have a year to wait for there to be more, which is really exciting, you know, given how long this one took. It, it was deflating. I, I, I can't I can't lie about that. It, it, it was deflating in, in some way. What is exciting, though, and is another thing I'm very mixed on, and I will only get into this when I get into spoilers on our next episode when I review it with Mark, is like, this movie is really interested in the lore of the comics. Like, to the point that the comics feature prominently in the movie um, as, like, really important narrative elements. That's all I'll say. And knowing the comics will make it extra rewarding to you. Um, it is very explicit about individual comics in a way that is very exciting for me as a fan of the comics. These are people who know and love their comics and boy, are there some deep, deep cuts to things from the comics. I never thought to see on screen villains that are so dumb. You'd never think you'd see them on screen. And yet there they are. Uh, you will, you'll have some real surprises, but on the good end, like it really treats the comics as like sacred objects, so to speak. But the way that like the spider men in this movie react to them is something that I am not a hundred percent on board with yet. I can't really get into any more detail than that. Other than that, this movie is interested in destiny in the way the amazing Spider-Man movies are interested in destiny, the kind of, predestination of things to happen. And the Spider-Men seem to be on board with that. And the movie is set up to subvert that, but it expects you to believe that Spider-Man would be someone who would believe in destiny. And I don't really know that I agree with that. Um, And I think it's regressive to many of the characters in this film. You know, the famously Amazing Spider-Man 33 is a comic called If This Be My Destiny. And the whole idea of that comic is Spider-Man won't accept his destiny. He is going to rise up and, and lift that iron over his head and do whatever it takes to come out the other end. 
you know, and the Spider-Man in this movie don't seem like that character. And I found that troublesome. And again, it's going to likely subvert that as part of the story, but it definitely uh, rung false to me and regressive for the characters. I will definitely get into more detail about this when we get into our spoiler talk, but all I can say is there are large parts of the main plot of this movie that I had a hard time accepting on face value, which took me out of the movie. I think average audiences are not going to have this problem that I had. This is coming from a deep Spider-Man nerd, which perhaps is why you're listening to this podcast to get that opinion. Just know, and and for those of you who, who feel similarly to me about Destiny and Spider-Man comics, you might struggle with this in the movie. Anyway, that's all I'm going to say about the movie for now. There's so many things to pick apart. I'm going to have an Easter egg article coming out with The Hollywood Reporter later this week that's going to get into my 100-plus Easter eggs I found in the movie. There's a lot of really exciting things to say about this movie. I cannot wait to go see it a bunch more times. No, it is not as good as Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse in my estimation. Very few things could be. But if... This is still a high watermark for superhero movies. If all superhero movies were like this and willing to engage with ideas and visuals like this, we would be the happiest consumers, so to speak, on the planet. This is Spider-Man continues to have a legacy of great cinematic offering in Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I can't wait to hear what you guys think when you go see it. Send us some email to AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com to let us know what you thought of the movie. Uh, I suspect many of you are going to love this movie, and uh, I will be very excited for you. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, early impressions. Hopefully you enjoyed them. They got you hyped for the movie or maybe deflated a little bit of that hype so you can go in and accept it on its own terms. It's awesome. It's exciting. It's a new chapter for Miles in my favorite cinematic uh, offering. But it is that time, time for all good things to come to an end. Thanks again to The Hollywood Reporter and Sony Pictures for inviting me to the premiere of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Plus, I wanted to say a thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning into this episode of The Amazing Spider-Talk. This podcast exists because of listener support on Patreon. For only $3.99 a month, we can for only $3.99 a month, you can help support our show's existence while getting early episodes including comic reviews the same week the comics release, exclusive artwork and tons of other bonuses. Thank you to everyone who already supports us and the work that we do. Plus, we want to issue a special thank you and welcome our newest patrons, Matt Finlay, Miguel Ganho, and SpiderDad04. And if you've ever been curious about joining our Patreon, we have a new seven-day free trial you can join with that will let you listen to our latest episodes and consider coming aboard for our awesome program. If you want to get caught up on all of our coverage of the latest Amazing Spider-Man comics and this movie... You can just go onto the Patreon and listen to everything we've ever published on there for seven days. It's really an awesome amount of content that you might not have access to, that you might not have access to otherwise, and it's free for seven days. 
Plus, to download our earliest episodes, including interviews with legendary creators like JMD, Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, Mark Bagley, and more, you can head on over and subscribe to our amazing Spider Talk Back Issues podcast on Apple Podcast. This podcast episode was edited by Rick Coast. The video version of the show is available on YouTube and was edited by Alex Galucki. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge, and our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton. So, until we go into, across, and beyond the podcast verse, our motto remains with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing Spider Talk. Don't you-